This program features interviews with respected healthcare industry experts on current topics of substantial national importance. Your host for the program is David Intricasso, a DC-based healthcare policy analyst and researcher. We invite you to comment on the program by visiting thehealthcarepolicypodcast.com. Now, here's David. Welcome to the Healthcare Policy Podcast. Again, I'm the host, David Intracasso. During this podcast, we'll discuss remote area medicals work with its CEO, Jeff Eastman. Mr. Eastman, welcome to the program. Great. Thank you so much for having us on. Briefly on background, the U.S. is, of course, the only highly developed country in the world that lacks universal health care coverage. Prior to the passage of the Affordable Care Act in 2010, the number of non-elderly Americans without health insurance numbered 44 million or over 20 percent. This number dropped to 27 million in 2016. Last week, Gallup survey data indicated since 2016, 7 million fewer Americans now have health insurance. This finding is not altogether unsurprising considering the administration's ACA regulatory actions over the past two years. For example, the current administration cut the budget for the Affordable Care Act navigators, those who help Americans sign up for health care coverage, by 85% or from $63 million in 2016 to $10 million in 2018. Concerning Medicaid expansion under the Affordable Care Act, 14 states have still not expanded coverage. These include Alabama, Florida, Georgia, Mississippi, North and South Carolina, and Texas. Other recent polling by the Kaiser Family Foundation shows 56% of Americans support single-payer, Insurance and independent of party affiliation, a large majority of Americans also support buy-ins to existing government-run health plans. That, those are Medicare and Medicaid. In the absence of health care coverage, Americans are forced to either pay out of pocket or rely on charity care. With me again to discuss remote area medicals, charity care program is its CEO, Jeff Eastman. So, uh, Jeff, with that as background, um, let me begin by asking, how did uh, RAM uh, begin, I understand it started in 1985, and what's its mission? Yeah, RAM started in 1985 by Mr. Stan Brock, who uh, some of us may remember from YouTube Omaha's Wild Kingdom on Sunday nights. He was the young adventurer with uh, Marlon Perkins would send him out to uh, stand and go wrestle that snake or go uh, lasso that water buffalo. Uh, Stan's background goes back to his early, his teens in South America where he ran the largest kale ranch in the Western Hemisphere. When he first arrived there in his late teens, uh, the uh, ranch he was at, they wanted to basically test his metal and put him on a horse uh, that had already killed two other people and the horse's name was Cain. Uh, Stan was placed on the horse. Immediately the horse ran across the corral, slammed him into the side of the corral and not threw him off. As he lay there on the ground looking up, he asked the, the Wapashan Indians who were the uh, the cowboys there how far to health care and they pointed outside the corral to a path that led to Georgetown it set us 26 days down that path. Well, obviously, he was in no condition to walk 26, mile, 26 days to health care. However, he did make a commitment at that time that he was going to bring health care closer to individuals no matter where he was. 
uh, he actually learned how to fly there in Guyana and focused on learning what he could about health care. You know, from the time uh, in Guyana, he was discovered by Marlon Perkins with Mutual Omaha's Wild Kingdom. Went off to a successful career there, movies, uh, pilot, uh, flying DC-3s all over the world and uh, east coast of the U.S. At the age of late 40s, when most of us are thinking about retirement, he looked back in his life and said, I wanted to give back and not forget the Wapashanas and that people need to be health care brought closer. And he formed Remote Area Medical. Originally, the plan was to bring remote health, bring health care to those remote areas such as South America. Stan soon discovered that there were people throughout the U.S. who lacked the basics of health care. And the focus ended up being here in the U.S. Since 1985, uh, RAM has served 785,000 people, providing over $135 million worth of free care to the efforts of 135,000 volunteers. Uh, What we do is we operate free dental, medical, and vision clinics throughout the U.S. from Florida, California, upstate New York, down to Texas, um, all the way up into Minnesota and and North and South Dakota. Uh, Wherever there's a need, we're invited in. Great. Thank you. And you have, so let's go to your upcoming, you term these, I I believe, expeditions. You're located in Knoxville, and you'll soon have or conduct your thousandth expedition in Knoxville. So if yes, you could sir. just step me through how I did read some details. Uh, these are uh, two or three day events. You invite, advertise, you hand out numbers beginning at three o'clock in the morning. So if you could explain uh, how these are conducted. Yeah, absolutely. We'll take the Knoxville one because it's the closest and easiest to explain. We actually use a community host model where communities invite us in, and we'll circle back to that later on during our discussion. Here in Knoxville, Remote Area Medical acts as the host, and we will have the clinic here at the Knoxville, the Jacobs Building. What that looks like is my team today has already set up 100 dental chairs, uh, 20 lanes of vision for exams, uh, about a dozen uh, pipe and drape rooms for medical. Uh, people will start arriving. Actually, there were seven people in the parking lot last night when it was 18 degrees already lined up waiting for the clinic to open on Friday, this upcoming Friday. Uh, so with tomorrow. three patients Friday. Yes, sir. So they were there last night. Uh, one lady had ridden a bicycle 15 miles and brought a tent was pitching up a tent, um, and it's not even been above freezing all day here in Knoxville. And she'll be waiting there till tomorrow morning at 6 when we open up. Um, they'll be in line. We'll pass the numbers out probably between midnight and 3 o'clock in the morning. And at 6 in the morning, we'll open the doors and invite uh, those, those neighbors of ours in for treatment. We ask no identifying questions. We don't ask uh you know, for any ID whatsoever. Uh, if you want to be Donald Duck from Orlando, that's fine. And the people that come to our clinics, it's it's not that individual down at the interstate with a sign, you know, I need help. Uh, a normal clinic, uh, if there is such a thing, a third of our patients are employed. Uh, of those third, I mean, are uh, employed full-time or part-time. A third are unemployed. But of those third that are unemployed, Half of those are actively looking for work. 
we run about 15 to 18% retired, uh, disabled, about 3% children. And the one that pains me every time is 5% of our patients are, are veterans consistently, no matter where we hold our clinics. Okay, thank you. Let me ask, so how many, um, how many um, individuals do you think you'll see uh, this weekend uh, in providing care? Yeah, we'll see over a thousand. Uh, we've got a hundred dental chairs set up. We've got great volunteers, State University of New York from Buffalo, uh, along from other some other schools that are coming in with their uh, their medical, dental, and vision departments would be providing uh, services. So uh, I estimate at least a thousand. I think we'll probably have around twelve hundred uh, for this three day of event. Our average clinic runs between six and eight hundred people. Uh, depending on the population, it's all dependent on the number of providers that we have. Uh, we have over 100 dental chairs we can set up. We have over uh, 30 lanes of vision we can set up and un unlimited pipe and drive for medical exams. Uh, our ability to, to provide services for patients is strictly driven by the number of professionals uh, that have signed up and volunteer for our clinics. Sure, that, that, that makes sense. So let me ask you, you noted that you'll have this weekend uh, clinicians from other states. How, how is that managed? How do you, um, I suppose you have a track record now, um, but how do you attract uh, clinicians? Oh, that's an excellent question. I've, we've got a great team here. I've, I've, I've got five people in my volunteer management team, and, and one of them, Mary Brown, she's our, clinic, our volunteer manager. She goes out and speaks to those schools uh, from Harvard to University of Georgia to Nevada to Florida. It's all over the U.S. speaking to universities to give them the opportunity to come in and uh, to volunteer our clinics. Tennessee is one of the 12 states that has a very easy process for uh, dental, medical, and vision providers to volunteer. They just have to go to our website, uh, register send us a copy of their license, and they're very easy to come and volunteer. Uh, some of the other 11 states, some of them are as easy as Tennessee. Some of uh, the barriers to entry are a little harder. And in some states, it's uh, it's strictly to the state uh, licensing boards and a little more challenging. So you'd have to be, if you had a clinic in another state that required the clinician to be licensed in that state, that would be the prerequisite. And Tennessee does not. Right require that okay does not okay yeah it does not uh i've read about um uh, these events in fact i have to say i've read over the years uh, more over in the washington post coverage of these uh, particularly when they're closer to dc so for example west virginia but let me ask you i do get the sense a lot of this care is dental care um, you do mention vision medical you do also mention that you provide <laughs> care for um um patients, pets, uh, you, you do that as well. But let's stay with um, uh, the former. A lot of this, I would imagine, is tooth extraction in the dental realm. Correct. Uh, when you break down our services, approximately 65% of patients that come to us are for dental, approximately 30% for vision, 
and only 5% medical, and that's due to the, uh, a couple of factors. One is no matter where I travel, if I'm in the D.C. area or West Virginia, and if I trip and fall somewhere and I break my leg, the emergency room is required to take care of me. They're going to fix my leg, and they're either going to you know, write me off as indigent care or be my insurance company. Versus if, if I come into that same emergency room and my tooth is inflamed, it's I've got an infection, uh, they'll, nine times out of ten, they'll put me on antibiotics, possibly give me something light for pain, and suggest that I go see a dentist. Same thing with vision. Uh, if I go there and I can't see, they'll recommend that I go see an optometrist. And actually, no matter where uh, individuals are on the uh, on the ACA, uh, it doesn't cover dental, for the most part, dental and vision. So uh, our patients, you know, they keep increasing every year. For example, uh, in 2013, we, we saw 17,000 people. Uh, last year, we saw over 45,000 uh, individuals were served by RAN. On the dental, since you mentioned uh, 15 to 18% are retired, um, it is the case that Medicare does not uh, cover routine oral or dental uh, examinations. Uh, however, recently there's been news that CMS is talking about providing, under their regulatory authority, um, more oral health coverage. Uh, it is almost shocking that the Medicare program, 50-plus years now and running, does not cover uh, routine oral dental health, particularly when we know the correlation between uh, adequate oral health care and uh, overall physical health is pretty strong. Uh, so on vision care, your I'm assuming you're beyond just testing person's visions. You're somehow providing eyeglasses or eyewear. Oh, absolutely! Yeah, absolutely. We uh, we provide full services. We don't do screenings. For example, on the vision, we do a, a complete. We first of all do a complete acuity as far as like finding what your prescription is. We do a complete eye exam, and we have uh, hundreds of frames on site. All of them donated, and the patients get to pick out their frames. We have three mobile vision labs that actually stocked uh, over 10,000 lenses to match up with the individual's prescription, and we make the uh, glasses right there on site. So the patient will go through the exam, pick out their frames, and they're wonderful frames. You'll see frames donated uh, from across uh, many, many retailers and, and private uh, opticians, and along with schools that donate. And then pick out, we'll have you know, Versace, Tony Bahama, so these will be very, very nice frames that they'll pick out. And they'll wait usually about an hour or so, a couple hours, and we will make the, uh, the glasses on site. They'll be fitted by licensed opticians on site, and they'll uh, go home with a pair of glasses. Uh, the scary part is a significant number of those people that came to get glasses also drove to the clinic, and that's the part that always gives me a little angst. Right, exactly, exactly. I will say it sounds like this is the best vision care to be had in the country. Nobody gets glasses in an hour after an exam, uh, at least to my knowledge. It, right, and it's, you know, as the day goes on, it takes a little bit longer, obviously. And mm-hmm. if we can't make the prescription on site, we do bring them back here to headquarters and uh, we get them uh, mailed off, uh, made, and mailed to the individuals. Okay, I have to ask, since you're seeing this population, is there any attempt or effort made, since I mentioned 36 states, I mentioned 14 states have not expanded Medicaid coverage on the Affordable Care Act, but that means 
36 states, including D.C., have. Do you do any, uh, any efforts to sign up patients in states, regardless of whether they expanded uh, Medicare coverage or not, did you make any effort to uh, sign them up for the Medicaid program in that state? Yeah, well, uh, in our clinics, we have an area called the community resource area. We do not allow any partners or vendors to sign up people. What we do is we allow them to come in, whether it's a local nonprofit to United Way, uh, any type of insurance. We allow them to share information uh, of what's available in the marketplace and give them resources where they can go and sign up uh, outside of the clinic environment. Uh, so we do, you know, allow them to share, but we do not allow any of the, the vendors to, to collect information there and do a follow-up, okay. but absolutely share information of what's in the marketplace and what resources are um, in, the, in, in the community where the patients live. Okay. I have to ask, do you prescribe medications? We do have prescribed medication uh, on the dental side. Very, very infrequently, uh, we do have Tylenol, you know, antibiotics, and then quite often we'll have a, a, a pharmacy school or a partnership with a local uh, retailer that will have discounted prescriptions available that we'll partner with, or if it's with a pharmacy school, uh, we'll have a pharmacy on site. Okay. And... I'm assuming, and you and I read your flyer on Knoxville. You do provide local statistics or statistics about the Knoxville community, about uh, poverty rate, those percents uh, relative to uh, Medicaid beneficiaries, et cetera, or just uh, poverty popul- uh, statistics generally. How do you, uh, in that context, how do you determine uh, your locations? I'm assuming there has to be obviously a local sponsor. Right. That's, a, that's an excellent question. We we very much use a pull model where an individual says, you know, I've heard about RAM. I want to make a difference in my community. They go to our website, ramusa.org, and there's a tab, Bring RAM to Our Community. And we send them out a little starter kit, we call it, that gives them the overview of what's required. And if that doesn't scare them off as far as the requirements, and we, we, and we don't charge. RAM does not charge to come to a community. However, you know, we do need a, a location to set up. We need uh, resources as far as a place for volunteers to stay, um, has a waste disposal, all these processes. And if they say, well, th- that doesn't scare them off, then we send them a community host agreement, uh, which is a big, huge binder, and it's an operations manual. We've been very successful. Um, if you take a look at our clinic so that are coming up in 2019, uh, and across the counties that we're going to versus the U.S. average, we'll have a statistically higher <clears throat> heart disease mortality, cancer mortality, COPD mortality, injury mortality, stroke mortality, and higher di- uh, diabetes mortality. Mm-hmm. Then when you dive into um, as far as the availability of medical providers, they'll have less primary care providers less mental health providers, less specialists, and less dentists. So obviously... So this tells me from a high level that this process is working, that without us sitting here in Knoxville and doing a, a lot of research analysis, the model that we have where the community self-identifies is absolutely working, that we go where the need is. Mm-hmm. You do. You mentioned uh, in the intro uh, Stan Brock's initial interest possibly in overseas, but I did note or did see you do work, in fact, overseas, the Philippines and elsewhere. Can you say 
Tell me a bit about that. Sure, absolutely. Uh, we have a wonderful partner, um, Heidi San, Dr. Heidi Sampag, who's been a volunteer a long time, and she's actually in the, currently in the Philippines, and she operates over there and goes out to the hinterland and does clinics there throughout the area. And besides Dr. Heidi Sampag, we also have an ongoing free air ambulance in Guyana, and that operation is different than our ambulance here in the United States. Basically, down there, it's a Cessna 206 that goes out to the villages, picks up patients, and brings them to a hospital there in Lethem. Uh, the roads, the infrastructure in Guyana are very poor. I was there last April. We flew out and picked up two very pregnant young ladies, 21 and 19. Uh, would have been about an eight-hour drive on this bumpy, what you might call, barely call a road, or it had been over a day and a half walk to the hospital. And their village had run out of water and the well was dry. Okay, thank you. Um, let me just, as a, possibly a last question, this podcast is concerned with healthcare policy. This conversation is actually a clinical delivery for the underserved. But I have to ask, uh, in all the years RM, RAM, RAM has been in operation, what's your general sense of the response by a local and state uh, authorities, um, government entities, uh, relative to at least uh, supporting your work, uh, however? We've had politicians uh, at local levels, national levels, from the House and the Senate both, uh, come to all of our clinics, uh, both sides of the aisle. All of them are impressed with the work. Um, They're actually support us and thank us. Um, and I think across both parties, they're a little embarrassed that we actually, that this need is, is out there when you get down to that one-on-one level. And uh, they really wish we wouldn't have to be this way, but, but we are. But we do get support uh, from both sides of the aisle. Well, I appreciate your candid and honesty, and they should be embarrassed. So I appreciate noting that. Uh, Jeff, we're at our time boundary. However, to conclude, let me just ask generally, what what might you say? Most not-for-profits, in my experience, their goal is to is to address the problem to the extent that they can put themselves out of business. Uh, there is nothing on the horizon that that will be the case in your instance. Um, so my my assumption is, RAM will just continue to address the demand where it can, based on its resources, number of clinicians who, to their credit, obviously are volunteering their time and, and talent. But I guess that's the case. You'll just persist for however long. Right. Uh, RAM will always be there to fill the gaps in the healthcare. care. Uh, what we do is make it easier for the professionals. Uh, most professionals, they, are very, they don't want to organize, fundraise, do the logistics. RAM does all that heavy lifting. And I believe that individuals want to inherently give back, and we provide a great platform for general volunteers and professionals to give back. Yes, you do, absolutely. Well, uh, uh, Jeff, thank you for your time. I appreciate it, and best of luck uh, in Knoxville this weekend. Great. I invite all your listeners to go to ramusa.org and get information or follow us on on Facebook and any other social media. So once again, thank you so much for the invitation. It's uh, partners like you that make a huge difference getting the word out. Thank you again.
You have just heard another edition of the Healthcare Policy Podcast hosted by David Intricasso. To comment on this program or others, to see information about upcoming interviews, to suggest a program topic, or to hear an archive program, please visit our website, thehealthcarepolicypodcast.com. Thank you for listening, and please listen again soon.